Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Vedant and this is... Natalie. Um, today we are here with Eric Switchgable, who is a well-known American philosopher, writer, and professor. He has been a professor of philosophy at the University of California, Riverside, since 1996, where he currently holds the position of professor of philosophy and holds the Rev. John A. Blade Chair in Philosophy. Switchgable's research interests include philosophy of mind, ethics, epistemology, and experimental philosophy. He is known for his work on self-knowledge, consciousness, and the nature of belief. His articles and essays have appeared in numerous academic journals and popular publications, including the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, and the Wall Street Journal. Okay, so first question. <laughs> <laughs> Not all of that was true. Oh, okay, yeah. So, <laughs> the okay. first question was going to be, uh, could you notice that we generated that with ChatGPT? <laughs> yes, that actually had occurred to me as a possibility because there were some things in there that weren't correct. And I know that ChatGPT has a tendency to uh, make plausible but incorrect attributions uh, Wait, that's interesting. academic biographies. Does, does it, like, pull from the past? Oh. No, it it what it seems to do is create stuff that seems plausible, right? That would be, you know, so professors will often have name chairs. So we'll just kind of invent a name chair for you, which I don't have a name chair, but so it invented one for me. And, um, you know, it is true that I have published in the L.A. Times, but I haven't published in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. So right. We were we were going to yeah. say before we move on, would you want to clarify what ChatGPT got wrong? After that <laughs> we like, I wonder like, how fast he's going to be able to tell. <laughs> yeah, I picked up on those things right away. <laughs> like, hmm. That's pretty interesting That's funny. about ChatGPT. Um, so basically, to start off, um, yeah. I the first thing I kind of wanted to ask was like, what got you into like philosophy originally? Because the trajectory that your studies have seemed to take in have been like very personal to you and almost mm. autobiographical. But like, did you always know you wanted to be in philosophy, or did you have like a moment of your childhood when you just knew this is what you wanted to do? I knew I wanted to be a professor, but I didn't know of what. My dad was a psychology professor, and my mom was a community college teacher of statistics and chemistry. And I saw what they did and thought that was pretty neat and wanted to be like that. So when I went to university, I went to Stanford, my plan was I would sign up for eight classes every quarter. And then I'd drop the four that I didn't like. <laughs> Wait, that's a fun strategy. <laughs> and then I would just take whatever I felt like, regardless of any kinds of requirements, and just see what I was gravitating toward and then hopefully become a professor of that. Mm. So that was my strategy. And I found over time that uh, I gravitated toward philosophy. But it took a while. I started off actually thinking maybe chemistry was going to be my major. Um, and uh, I liked chemistry a lot, but um, but philosophy ended up having more magnetism for me in the end. One of the things I really love about philosophy um, is, as you kind of alluded to, I've written on a lot of different things. <laughs> One of the things I really love about philosophy is that you can kind of pursue whatever you're interested in, and if you do it in a 
kind of abstract, deep enough way where you're getting to the core issues, you can, you're doing philosophy, really. Mm-hmm. So for, for basically for all X, you can do a philosophy of X. And so it's good for people like me with a little bit of uh, academic ADHD, so to speak. Uh, like, ooh, that's really cool. Large language models or whatever, right? Oh, I could do philosophy of that. <laughs> right. right. As opposed to being if you're a chemist, you just can't do chemistry of large language models, I guess. But I mean, maybe you could, but. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, like, brought that up because I'm kind of the same way, same way. I used to be, like, into the sciences and also into, like, poetry and stuff. And yeah. I, like, like that, like, intertwined into philosophy. Um, yeah. But that kind of brings me to, like, a slightly more serious question, which is given that philosophy is unique in that it has this nature of being extremely rational and logical but also extremely abstract and, like, intuition-based creative, um, do you think the academic system as it is right now um, is suitable to, like, address this, this like, polarity of philosophy? Do you think philosophy is taught in the mm. best way it can be? That's interesting. The, the properties you attributed to philosophy saying it was unique strike me they also are true of math. They're abstract and, and yet creative. But creative in a different way, Yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, I think the most interesting math is really very creative. But philosophers are creative with words in a way. Uh, or the mathematicians have a different kind of creativity, I suppose. Yeah, I know a mathematician's creativity is more like, I'm a math major too, so no bias against math. Yeah. But a mathematician's creativity is more like conceptual in the sense that yes. it's more about like seeking what is there to be known. But with the philosopher, given that you can use words and not just symbols and numbers, you can create things that aren't exactly uh, pre-existing concepts. You know, there's more of like the like human impression. I yes, I would agree with that. There's something more human. There's something divinely inhuman about math, <laughs> in a good way, but also in a way that misses something that philosophy gets. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is a good discipline for someone who has both humanistic interests and interests in things like poetry and fiction, and also scientific interests and interests in, you know rigorous demonstration and those sorts of things because you really can bring those things together in philosophy. Hmm. And that's like an interesting comment because like I feel like, like I'm a philosophy and public affairs major and the thing that originally got me into philosophy was I was like young and I was like what is the purpose of living like how can I contextualize the life I'm living in so that I can live with like the most purpose I was like a very like interesting child in that way that's cool. and the more that I studied philosophy the more I realized like like, how realistic actually is this? Like, I've ca- I've come to this, like, I've gone through, like, all these logical stints, and my answer is I have to, like, swim in the pool and look at the sky and, like, sit there for three hours. Like, like in what sense, like, <laughs> is this actually, like, going to help me in life? And then, obviously, with realizing that, I'm still here in this major, and I'm not yeah. exactly sure completely why. I still am attracted to it. And I'm just curious, like, for you, who's, like, committed, like, his whole career to philosophy, even though it's not always perfectly realistic, what has, like, kept you in the field? And um, even though, like, I mean, are we even meant to understand the whole of the world around us? And No, it would be so disappointing <laughs> if we could understand the whole world. I mean, okay, we figured it all out. It's done. I mean, wow, that would be kind of disappointing. Um, I, th- I think the world is wonderful in part by being so mysterious and intractable. We can't fee- we can we can make progress. It's not completely incomprehensible. That would be frustrating in a different kind of way. We can 
we can get glimpses and understanding and aspects of it, but we can't. I don't think humans will ever completely figure everything out. There will always be the why behind the why behind the why. You'll always run into questions at the edge of, of your understanding. And that's often where philosophy ends up, right? So, you know, you, you push against what you do understand as hard as you can, and you get to where you don't understand anymore. You know, so you start with a simple question. Here's a hat on the table, right? And you can ask a why question. Okay, why is the hat there? Okay, well, because, you know, Professor Schwitzgebel needed a place to, to put it. Well, why did he need a place to put it? Well, because you don't want to wear hats on your head. You keep asking these questions like a two-year-old, and eventually you get to, well, why don't people want to be uncomfortable? And now you're like, okay, maybe you can answer that with some psychology, <laughs> or maybe you can't. Um, but even if you can answer it, you say something like, oh, well, people have certain drives or whatever. Why do people have drives? Now you get into evolutionary history. You, the further you back up, the more you get to questions that become difficult to answer and the more you get to the boundaries of understanding. I don't think we'll ever get to a point where we understand, where there's no more why to be asked. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I'm glad you like brought up the like infiniteness of not knowing because the more you know, the more you don't know simultaneously yeah. because you can create like striations from that. Which yeah, yeah. That's another around. commonality between philosophy and math, right? I mean, if, yeah. there's an infinitude of not knowing in mathematics too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, given that, given that there's no like end goal to knowing, um, of course, there's pursuing knowing for the sake of knowing. But do you think like, the, especially the kind of questions you brought up, the like existential, why do we do what we do questions? Do you think that like increases your sense of well-being as the person asking the questions? And is that a trend we've, like, seen amongst philosophers in the past? Um, there's two senses of well-being that I would pull apart here. So there's a question about whether it's pleasant or pleasurable to consider questions like this. You know, does it make you happier in some sense of like feeling more positive emotions if you do philosophy? And I don't know what the answer to that question is. I think it's possible that it makes you less happy. <laughs> I'm not sure. I try to do philosophy mostly. No, that's not even true. <laughs> I was going to say, what I was going to say, which turns out not to be true, is that I try to mostly do philosophy that makes me happy that where I'm kind of doing stuff that I think is fun. Um, but, you know, I've also got this research line on evil where I'm reading about the Holocaust and uh, the worst kinds of human evil and thinking about that. And that's definitely not fun. Um, but I feel like it's important. Right. So, okay, so that's one kind of well-being, right, is something like, feeling positive emotions and happiness. There's another kind of well-being, which is something more like thriving or doing worthwhile things. And I guess I do feel like it can be part of a life that is intrinsically worthwhile that you dedicate yourself to thinking about philosophical issues. I don't think everybody has to, but I think that can be a feature of a life that is worth living. That's a kind of thriving 
life, right? Imagine, imagine what it would be like if nobody in the world thought about philosophical questions. Everybody was completely non-philosophical or unreflectively filled with philosophical assumptions and didn't challenge them. That would be a kind of impoverished world in a way. So I think that when we think about philosophy, we bring something to our lives and to the world that's worth having. Hmm. And I'm curious, like, as you're going through this questioning, like, are there principles that you build your questioning on? Because you were just talking about how, like, you just continue to ask more questions until, like, what are you left with? But you can't be left with nothing. Yeah. I kind of like when... For me, I mean, different people have different philosophical character, right? But one of the things about my philosophical character is I like it when something that I thought was stable and that I knew turns out to be less stable and known. It's like mm. the rug pulls up, gets pulled out from under me and what I thought was solid floor is like, whoa, there's a whole lot of empty space down there. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know. I mean, so yeah, so I guess... I'm not inclined to think that there are any principles that I want to hold on to definitely that I take as my rock solid foundations or the hinges on which everything turns. I'm kind of more interested in the shifting sands of thought. Interesting. And I was reading one of your past interviews and and you and you talked about how you would prefer to live in like a utopian world, like you would prefer to live in a place where there was rich culture and rich intellectuals and like art and things like that over like a perfect city of like shining angels. And <laughs> I wanted to ask you like, why yeah. do you think like, and I think that's like a pretty common thought where you're just like more attracted to things that are more evil or more dark versus things that are perfectly good. Why do you think humans are attracted to these things. Yeah, that's that's an interesting and difficult thought, right? So one of the things when I'm thinking about evil, uh, I teach this large lower division class most years called Evil. We get 300 to 500 students in it every year. And at the conclusion of the class, and I haven't really written an article about this yet. It's on my list of things I want to do, but at the conclusion of the class, we think about whether the existence of evil and suffering in the world is compatible with there being a perfect God. Because right? you think if God is all-powerful, as a lot of the monotheistic traditions would say, right, then God could create a world where nobody ever suffers and everybody is angelic. Um, but if there is a God of that sort, which I don't necessarily think there is, my inclination is against it, but... But I don't rule it out. But if there is a God of that sort, then that God didn't choose to create a world of perfect angels who never suffer. Mm -hmm. And in a way that's disappointing. You're like, well, God could have made that, saved that child from dying, and yet that child died, right? And that seems like pretty horrible. But at the same time, you know, when I, if I try to envision a reality where there's no loss, there's no grief, there's no premature death, there's no war, there's no suffering, there's no evil, 
there's something really attractive about that, but there also seems to be something kind of impoverished about that. Yeah, it would be no fun. <laughs> I mean, you could imagine God turning up the fun meter so that everyone's like laughing all the time, like it's a big party and, you know, their emotional centers are going, wee, right? So it could be, in a sense, f- very fun, right? But uh, that's an interesting thought. <laughs> but it would still be, it would be, it would, it would be missing something. Stakes, adventure. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. That's like a strange dichotomy of like this need to like have some kind of like evil or something to like work for in the world to not have just like something that's purely utopian. But like, why do we need that contrast in order to have a life that's like more fulfilling or more useful to us? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know why we need it or even for sure that we do need it. I just feel like it's not obvious that we don't need it. And if if this God were hypothetically to exist, and it's pretty evident that he does, he or she doesn't favor um, <clears throat> goodness the way we like conceive of it over like evil or chaos. Um, yeah. Does that imply that we should rethink ethics? Um, I think it's quite possible that if there's a God, this God is not benevolent. I mean, that's the kind of most obvious interpretation of the data, <laughs> right? Look out at the world, do what sometimes is called natural theology, right? You look at the world and you say, okay, based on what I see in the world, what must God be like if there's a God that created this world, right? If we do some natural theology, it doesn't seem like we've got a benevolent God running things. It seems like there's so much evil and suffering. So... On the face of it, it looks like if there's a God, God is not deserved to be worshipped. So I would, and this is a move that goes back to Plato, but I would say if the God or gods or whoever created this world is morally bad, we shouldn't change our conception of morality to suit this being of power, but rather we should condemn the morality of God. I mean, what if we're, you know, a lot of people these days are familiar with the idea that we might be living in a simulation, right? We might be AI systems living in an artificial reality. I don't think that's super likely, but I don't rule it out 100% entirely, right? So if, we're, if we were living in a sim, then God could be a sadistic teenager who's about to l- release Godzilla on our town to, you know, s- be entertained by our suffering as Godzilla stomps on us, right? I wouldn't want to worship that God. Right, but the funny thing about this sadistic teenager is he knows more than we all do. Yes. That, you know, as I'm, as I'm imagining the scenario, that teenager could look in each of our minds and know exactly what we're going to do and tweak our personalities and all that kind of stuff, right? And chooses to enjoy seeing us suffer. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily make him good or worthy of worship. Exactly. Interesting. I'm kind of curious. I want to hear more from you. Like in class today, you talked about how like you're 50-50 on the plausibility of materialism. Yeah. And I was wondering if you'd be willing to elaborate more on why that is. Right. Well, so according to materialism, as I understand it, 
Reality is fundamentally composed of material stuff, where material stuff is things like particles, atoms, molecules, quarks, photons, you know, or fields or waves or however you want to conceive of that stuff, as long as you think of it as kind of non-mental stuff that you know, particle physics is interested in. And that's the fundamental nature of reality. And all of our experiences are built up of that. So that's materialism. Now, I think we don't really know that that's the fundamental nature of reality. I think there are poss it's a possibility that there's something fundamentally mental in reality. I think it's also a possibility that we don't know what fundamental reality is at all. And it's something quite elusive that doesn't fit into that, the box that particle physics gives us. Let me just give you one way of thinking about this. I don't think this is a super plausible way of thinking about it, but it's, it's an angle to thinking about it. Um, so if we go back to the simulation idea, then fundamental reality is a computer, not quarks, right? Quarks are things that the computer creates for us to see when we run certain physics experiments. Right. That's not really the fundamental nature of reality if we're living in a simulation. If we're living in a simulation, the fundamental nature of reality is a computer. Well, here's, a, some, here's something about computers, about theory of computation. Computers don't have to be spatial. If you look at the fundamental understanding of uh, computation, going back to Alan Turing, all you need for computation is transition states and... Um, functions of a certain sort. So you could implement computation, say, in an immaterial angel. You could have a non-material, wholly mental computer, right? And then the fundamental nature of reality could be the mind of an immaterial angel who's working through the computational algorithms that create our world. Right. I'm not saying that's likely at all, but just as like a thought experiment to think about, okay, could fundamental reality be just radically different from what we think? And how would we know? We've got no way of testing whether the nature of reality ultimately is, you know, the thoughts of an immaterial angel. There's no like meter, <laughs> like material worldometer that you could hold up and say, ah, yeah, no, the fundamental nature of this cup is material. And there's, we'd have no scientific way of directly testing that. So if we broaden that perspective, then we get something close to a perspective uh, historically associated with, with Immanuel Kant, the, uh, the 18th century philosopher. Um, called transcendental idealism, which is the idea that we really have no idea what fundamental reality is. And all of the kind of spatial properties that we think of as belonging to fundamental physics arise from how our minds interact with this unknowable fundamental reality. So I, I think that's not a bad way of thinking about things. It's not actually, right, as, as we started, as you started, you know, I lean 50-50 toward kind of standard issue, normal scientific materialism as ordinary physicists think about it, right? You know, that's kind of, uh, 
if I had to guess, that's what I would guess. But I think there are other options worth considering, and, and a big one among these other options in my mind is, is something like what I just described, the transcendental idealism I just described. So I wonder, in like a world that's like potentially materialistic, potentially transcendentally idealistic, um, how does time factor into this? Because sorry, how does what time time time, time yes into this? Because time is not spatial, uh, right. as as far as we understand it. And I like have the intuition that there's an intrinsic relationship between thinking and time. What do you think? Yeah, um, this is where Kant gets more radical than our computational angel, right? Because computation requires state transitions, or at least their possibility. And transition is a temporal term. So if we're thinking about this kind of idea that we're living in a simulation implemented in the mind of an angel, we still got time as being foundationally real. But Kant thought that time was like space, uh, uh, transcendentally ideal. It's something that we, that's a result of how we somehow interact with uh, an unknowable fundamental cosmos. So yeah, time would, time would go in, the, if you, if you want to go further toward Kant, time will go in the same box as space and causation will also, these will all be ways that our minds necessarily construe things as they are in themselves, but not really features of things as they are in themselves. Is that where you stand too with Kant on this matter? Um, I don't think I need to go that far. I think it's an attractive and interesting view. Um, it's a view toward which I'm tempted, but a somewhat larger part of me just wants to be an ordinary scientific naturalist. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't feel like I have to decide this, right? So philosophers, you know, I guess philosophers want to say, here's the truth. I figured it out. Here's the right story, right? And I just, I don't have as much of that inclination, I guess, as some people. But I'm, 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 I'm comfortable. And in fact, I kind of like admitting to myself that I'm not sure which is the right way to think about it. Though I empathize with that sentiment completely because I feel like, especially like studying this like existential branch of philosophy that attempts to like explain everything, um, these models, I feel like don't really capture the nuance, the nuance of, of things like when I'm bored, time goes slower, when I'm having fun, time goes quicker, <laughs> you know, like these, yeah. these have to be like factored in to like our perception of time. Yes, right, our perception of time is, surely has a little bit of looseness with respect to how physical time uh, transpires, right, as measured by, you know, as a physicist would measure it with an atomic clock or whatever. Um, whether physical time is measured by atomic clocks is part of the fundamental nature of things or whether it arises somehow derivatively from other non-mental things that are more fundamental, or whether it arises delivered uh, from mental things, as the transcendental idealist thinks, I think we can leave as an open question. At least in my mind, it's it's an open question. So those are three different. So just to be clear, 
again, those are three different options, right? One option is time is fundamentally real. Other option is time is not fundamentally real. It's derivative on something else. And then you can say derivative on what? Option one is derivative on other physical things that aren't mental. You know, time somehow arises from information states of quantum fields or whatever. Uh, and option two is, no, time is derivative on something about our minds. That's the Kantian view. Hmm. Interesting. One more very abstract question since we're already very abstract. But yeah. do you think it's possible that two people could be living in a reality that is defined differently for each of them? Uh, yeah, sure. Right. So, again, the simulation hypothesis I'm mean, gonna sound. I sound a little bit like a simulation hypothesis <laughs> enthusiast, which I'm not. I, I'm not one of the people who thinks it's likely at all. <laughs> but I think it's really interesting philosophically as a way of thinking through issues. So, yeah, if we think about the simulation hypothesis, you might be living in one simulated reality, and I might be living in a different one. There's no would be no guarantee that our realities would overlap. They might partly overlap uh, and partly disagree. If you were to wake up tomorrow and like have someone like wake you up and tell you you were definitively living in a simulation, would that change anything? Yeah, I think that would change a lot. <laughs> First, I'd want to know who's running the simulation, what the purpose is, how long it's going to last, how long it has lasted, whether Milwaukee exists or whether it's just us here in the room. I want to get all those things clear. Because I think if we live in a simulation, then we don't know um, how long the past is and how long the future is and how big it is, right? This is one thing that I think most friends of the simulation idea tend to default towards saying, okay, if we live in a simulation, reality is pretty much how we think it is. It's just different at the fundamental level. Whereas I think, hey, look, if we live in a simulation, it could just be the three of us here in this room. I mean, those kinds of small simulations, to the extent we know anything about simulations, it seems like small simulations would be cheaper than large ones, whatever purposes our creators might have for creating a simulation might be well served just by having the three of us here having a philosophical conversation. And why would they bother to create a whole external reality? Yeah, I hope we've done a good job. <laughs> <laughs> right. They're going to delete this and say, man, that conversation went off the rails. Let's delete these sims and tweak some parameters and try it again. Right. You know, if we're living in a sim, the past could be tiny. The future could be tiny. The world could be tiny. I don't think we know. Yeah, and would all this uncertainty change how you lived on a long-term basis, do you think? Yeah, sure. If, if the future is tiny and it's just the three of us here, then I think I would behave very differently. Right, but it's, uncer <laughs> it's, it's, it's uncertainty. It's uncertainty. I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure it's not a sim, right? So my credence that I'm living in a sim is about, you know, maybe 0 0.1, 0 0.5, less than 1%. So, but I think that does, that can have an effect on life in a small way. Here's an example. Now, this is going to be, this is a little fanciful and maybe even a little silly. But this has actually happened. This is something that actually happened. I was sitting in my backyard and uh, my wife and my children were at temple. It was a Sunday. It was a beautiful day. And I'd just gotten a cup of tea and I, I brought out one of my favorite books, Borges' Labyrinths. And I was going to read it. 
And I was looking in the garden, I saw there's this Bermuda grass is growing up among the daisies in the yard. And I have this thought like, maybe I should do a little weeding so the Bermuda grass doesn't take over. And I'm sitting there for a minute thinking, should I drink my tea and read my Borges or should I weed? And I was right on the cusp between the two. I mean, weeding's not that bad. I kind of like, I kind of like weeding. I don't like it as much, but you know, then I, I got to weed sooner or later, or else, or else the daisies are going to be gone. So I was just right on the cusp between these two things. And then I thought to myself, well, maybe this is a simulation, or maybe the universe, in some other respect, is radically different than I think it is. Much shorter, for example. I think that the simulation hypothesis is not the only radically skeptical hypothesis. Well. If I'm really right on the cusp between these two things, before thinking about radical skepticism, then once I include a 1% or 0.1% credence that the future doesn't exist or is radically different than I think it will be, then that should tilt me slightly toward the near-term pleasure over the long-term benefit, right? Because the long-term benefit might not come to pass, right? Tomorrow might not exist at all, or the weeds might dissolve into chaos, or who knows, right? So then that justified my uh, reading the book and drinking the tea instead of weeding, right? Because otherwise I would have been on the cusp. So you can actually, I mean, you, you can think of this in terms of formal decision theory if you want, right? If you're really right on the cusp between two things, and if you add prior to thinking about radical skepticism about the future, and you add to that some sort of skepticism about the future, then that should tilt you decision theor theoretically toward the near-term choice over the long-term choice. Only if you're right on the cusp, you know, not, you know, at any high cost. Do you think that changes like ethics and morality based on what version of reality that you're more inclined to like lean into? <laughs> yes, right. I have a paper where I talk about some of these examples, but yeah, so one, one example of this was uh, I was talking with my dying father about um, the existence of God and whether God exists um, and, it's some, and other things like that. And uh, I said, kind of half joking, but half seriously, given the kinds of things that we've been talking about just now, I'm 99.8% sure that you exist. <laughs> what was his response to that? <laughs> and he just looked a little taken aback and alienated and disappointed or something. I mean, he's very intellectual. As I, I think I mentioned, he is a psychology professor, a kind of philosophically inclined one. We've been talking about philosophy, right? And he, he knows my theories about this stuff, or he did. I mean, he died shortly after that. Um, but it, like it threw up this wall between him and me. Like, I'm certain I exist, but you... Well, I have a smidgen of doubt, right? And there's something like really kind of yucky about that. Um, so I prefer when I think about radically skeptical possibilities, like the possibility that this is a small simulation, to think, let's assume that the three of us exist and together we'll doubt that there's anybody else who exists, <laughs> right? And that feels 
friendlier. In a way, it's it's kind of actually more intimate, right? Like we might be the only three people in the whole universe. Now suddenly I care about you more than when I assume that there are 8 billion other people on this planet, right? So, um, so I don't, yeah, I don't think it's ethically indifferent. Yeah. Well, thank you for your time. Unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for today. If time is real. If, if time is real. Um, to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Stay hungry.